This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 18 of Psych for Life with Dr Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr Amanda Ferguson. I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Jane Monica Jones. Jane is a financial therapist. She's a pioneer in the study of the psychological and behavioural challenges with money and financial practices, such as gambling, overt financial risk, retail therapy, overspending and under-earning. Jane is the author of The Billionaire Buddha and Money Mental Health Cards. She is the host of the Financial Therapy Podcast. And Jane, I see you've just recently launched your Money Mental Health Cards. Yeah, that's right, Amanda, I have. They're a really fabulous resource to get us to improve and be a bit more mindful of our relationship with money. So it's, yeah, I'm very excited that they're, they're out and um, they're going to be a great resource for people. Fantastic. And people can find them at www.janemonicajones.com. That's right. Yeah, just go to my website. Um, you can find them at janemonicajones.com as well as if you search financial therapy, you'll find me. So you can find them at them and all my other resources as well. Beautiful. So please tell us more about these cards. Yeah, they are basically, there's 50 cards in a pack. But what I'm really interested in, and particularly because I'm working in the area with money and I'm working with people around our challenges with money, some of these kind of reoccurring themes like money and sabotage, money and mindfulness, money and um, even neuroscience, what the impact of what's happening in our brain around certain activities with money. And this, the, the resource and all the work that I do in, the, in building financial capability with people. So people often see or think that being good at money is just knowing about budgets, managing money, uh, investment products. But more and more I see there is these deeper kind of broader aspects to our relationship with money, which are all about confidence, empowerment or lack of empowerment, and certainly our behaviours that can be sabotaging. So this resource is really about building a bigger conversation about how we do money, how we think money and how we are with money. And yeah, it's an exciting thing. And and uh, it's been developed out of the process of working with people for many years around this area. Fantastic. And I believe there are 50 full colour cards with key statements or writing exercises to develop financial well-being. Yeah. So, look, my approach is always about inquiry and getting curious rather than, you know, as, you, as a psychologist yourself, you know, one thing is that we need to unpack a lot of our um, maybe judgments and beliefs and concepts about many aspects of our life. So I've designed the cards to have that inquiry point, looking at, you know, how are you with financial boundaries? Something that we don't get taught about. We don't get taught about boundaries generally. Um, and so it's like, yeah, where are you? To, to be able to reflect on that. Sometimes I'm great financial boundaries at work, but when I get into personal relationships, I notice that I get a bit wobbly. So true. Yeah, so I like to look at inquiry as a way to 
get curious rather than judgmental about ourselves. Um, inquiry and being curious is a really great place to build a little bit more self-compassion and that's where we need a lot of self-compassion is around our relationship with money. I love that rounded approach you take and you're right, it opens a conversation um, that people can have with their therapists, they can have with their family members, maybe even children in a family. Yeah, absolutely. It's that's the nature of money is that we often have cultural cues that to say that we shouldn't talk about it and I'm really trying to bust that concept it's actually it is just an element that is loaded with a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, wounding and it's important like how we didn't talk about sex 20 years ago we're now starting or I hope we're getting better at having conversations about money so thrilled about this so these bite-sized resources called micro-teachings or micro-learnings about specific aspects of money management and money mindfulness, these are such essential resources that people can use in work and life, in schools, no doubt, in families, friends can use them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as I just said, that it's, in, it's vital that we start to open up and have a bit more of a, a broader narrative about how we do money. Jane, we met a couple of weeks ago when we both spoke at the Finance and Mental Health Symposium hosted by the Mental Health Foundation Australia. You're obviously very passionate and committed and experienced in this work um, as a financial therapist. What led you into this area of work and what drives you? Look, it actually, it was me being really terrible at money that, uh, you know, I often think of um, research or me-search. You know, it becomes that part of us that is probably the most broken or the most wounding that can inspire a journey to heal that. And for me, I came from a pretty average Australian middle-class family and had lots of issues around money where I would earn a lot and then lose a lot, not be able to manage it, overspend, under-earn. I was kind of classic area of being really terrible with money and it caused a lot of self-esteem issues, a lot of self-confidence um, and basically, yeah, it took me to the edge of myself and wow. it really made me see that from a pretty average regular background that anyone can have or be challenged by this aspect and that's what when I decided to change careers later on in life that I started to focus on, on uh, as a therapist I thought well this thing called money there's it's not really we often think that it's just the the numbers and as a therapist you know that it's actually broader it it you know it touches you know money or any challenging anything that's challenging in our life impacts so many other areas of our life and so yeah it was about trying to work out what was happening in me that someone that was intelligent um, had a lot of great resources to me, but yet was still challenged psychologically and behaviorally. And I thought, this has got to be a thing or it has to be a thing. And, you know, yeah, so it's, I've kind of made it my life work. So it was about turning my own wounding into being that gift that I can give back to people. So that, that's where I sort of came across it and came for it, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this work. You know, it is the classic wounded healer, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The wounded healer is often when I start working with people that they realise it actually is the great gift that they can learn about themselves. And so I really love that term about the wounded healer. Me too. It very much works for me. I was genuinely shocked to hear you say how prevalent these financial problems are and the issue with managing money. 
in people who are otherwise very well functioning and in fact even very high functioning people. Um, And you speak about people sabotaging their financial goals and about inner critic and other things. Can you tell me more about these problems? Yeah, so um, I mean the prevalence is, is quite wide even though we don't often talk about it. The fact that I do, I have a very, very full on practice and we often think that money comes around situations of crisis and trauma, like our problems with money. But they can be things like under-earning, chronic under-earning, not being able to really fully thrive financially, or it can be chronic overspending, such as that, yeah, I want to, I have these goals and I have a, you know, this idea that I'm going to build up my financial security, yet I blow a whole lot of money constantly and overspend. Um, the Because consumerism and um, overworking and, and all these kind of responses are sort of socially agreed problems, we don't see them as being an issue. We live in a very consumerist society. So we kind of, they're socially acceptable that being the problem when we feel challenged by it and we feel out of control. We're not kind of had the mirror put up to us to say that actually this is a problem for me when we see that a 500 handbags are actually socially okay. Yeah, it's a tricky kind of um, a, a tricky landscape because we have narratives that says consuming and accumulating is socially acceptable, if not a sign of being successful and and well-rounded, yet it can be very detrimental when you're seeing yourself not getting ahead financially, when there are no savings, when there's no buffer for when something goes wrong. So it's just to sort of sort of, I'm really keen to change the narrative and particularly around things like, yeah, how we criticise we need we have spending as a form of uh, stress management or stress release, and yet it then creates problems when we don't, you know, we're spending our rent. So I just want to kind of create a space where we can have bigger conversations about how it can be for people behind closed doors, and it doesn't happen to happen happen only under stress and under crisis it can happen to the person that's living next door so that's that's why I'm so passionate about this subject wow again your personal experience is really helping with your professional work the consumeristic sense of self emerged in the 80s wasn't it Jane yeah about that yeah I mean certainly in the Thatcher years and Reagan in the states and then we had um uh, Keynes uh, trickle down economics as well, so that you know certain populations of the or parts of the population ended up making a lot of money, and that status was sort of pegged against that concept that you know the more you owned, the more you showed, the more successful, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So in the eighties, yeah. And do you think that one of the good things coming out of this pandemic and global crisis could be? that it's revolutionising this sense of consumerism as well as part of our identities. Yeah, look, I think definitely, and I imagine you've seen this as well, Amanda, that we've been on a bit of a treadmill and when we're kind of on that treadmill of life, we're, we're in a sort of a state of activation. Uh, I, often a lot of my work is a, around looking at our physiolo- physiology and our threat response, basically. And so when we're in a state of threat 
to our sense of survival because that's what money really is. It's a deeper issues of survival and thriving. I look at it back into our early attachment, our early socialization when we were growing up and how we either felt completely uh, secure or that we had other elements that put us in a state of threat and looking at our sense of survival. We take that a capacity to either self-soothe and feel resourced or don't have that capacity to self-soothe and resource. And maybe avoid, you know, the avoidant attachment style exactly. as well. So then we go out into the world and say, you know what, that shoe is going to be the thing that's finally going to get me feeling relaxed, yeah, feeling grounded, feeling centred. But that shoe is actually... It's, it's an external place. It, yeah. We go outwardly rather than being able to be self-resourced. Yeah. So what as society, as expectations, as these concepts of what's important, what's not important has been escalated, that success is somehow uh, perceived as a kind of a material thing rather than how much I contribute to my community the, the nervous system is getting escalated and it's yeah. getting more and more tied into, I've got to find a way to come down. So drug addiction can happen, but also consuming can happen as a way that we think that if I just buy that next pair of shoes, it's going to bring that sense, that I bring my physiology down. But we know it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And, and if it does, it's very short term. Exactly. It builds it. It builds in the whole kind of dopamine kick yes. that if I can just get that kick, yes, I've yeah. done the reward. But the problem being is, is that, as you said, it's very short lived. The dopamine level goes down. We don't have a natural way to kind of find resources. We've lost contact with the earth. We've lost contact with family and community, all things that are really great to improve our dopamine levels. And yeah, we have to, we have to um, have it from trinkets and baubles and, you know, <laughs> shiny things. Yes. And, <laughs> and all the selfies. Yeah, uh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Moments where I felt on the outside good, but maybe didn't yeah. feel so good on the inside. Yeah. That cost me a lot in clothes and photography. Exactly. So being psychotherapists, we know that behaviour is the result of the way people think and feel, as well as their deeper belief systems. And our behaviour is influenced by our personality, our mood, our intellectual intelligence and emotional intelligence. Yeah. So any disorders in personality, mood, mental health, development, addictions, these also influence our behaviours and our responses and reactions to the environment and our experiences, our levels of self-regulation and resilience, our ability to learn, to be open to learning and developing, all of these things affect our behaviour. Yeah. So my understanding about the way we behave financially is also impacted by these personal psychological factors yep. and our relationship with money and the complex interactions between our mental and emotional health is fascinating in mm. terms of finance. And that's what we have is a very complex relationship with money that we often think on many levels that, that will buy pain relief. It will bind me yes. a sense of a place that I can land in the world. Mm. buying it for pain relief is one of the biggest challenges that I have. If I only have this right amount of money, then I can buy myself out of the madness is kind of the narrative. So we often 
link this idea that if I had just have the right amount, then I can buy myself sanity, basically. Yep. But the other interesting thing that I'm really, really curious about is how that money can be an extension of ourself. It extends our body map. Money becomes a tool for experiences, a tool to go beyond our physical form. And that often when we don't have enough money or we're under-earning or where money's erratic, that it limits yes. the expression of ourself. Yeah. It limits our creativity. What I love about this relationship with money is that it has many threads to it. It can be very expansive and then also very limiting. We can run over our boundaries on it yeah. or others run over our boundaries mm. with it. Or we also create our own limitations and boundaries with it. So it's complex and and that, I mean, I love it. I get totally passionate about the way that it is and how it touches so much of ourselves. It sets our self-esteem and then it also is not our self-esteem. It's like how identified am I with the things that I have and how hollow that is. So it really just touches so much and I find it so amazing and so limiting that the language or the narrative we have about money is just money when in fact it is greater and bigger and you know the fact that all our social um situation it focuses on on how much we have and how successful we are and yet when we see social systems now post pandemic which is where you sort of started this thread that actually says you know what it's human connection that's the most valuable piece it's being able to connect with nature is more important it's being able to con- the the fact that i couldn't be with my family because of lockdown yeah. really touches the sense of why i am a human mm. not another pair of shoes or another (laughs) shiny car or a place to live so this i think the pandemic has been a really fabulous reset on the human values the 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 part of us that actually longs for connection and we often think that if i have that shiny car i'll get that connection rather than actually that's the thing that may take us further away from others Mm, exactly in fact money can distance us from other people of course exactly This is such a big gap in our society that needs to be filled and I was so pleased to hear that there is now finally a financial therapist who can help us with this. And Jane, as you are an expert in this area, I'm fascinated to hear your understanding of the science behind people and money. You say that mental health issues can be prohibitive to managing money, but also having issues with money can affect our mental health. So I guess they're symbiotic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. You know, when we did our symposium a week ago or so, the thing that when I was preparing my talk about it, I thought this idea that it doesn't matter whether you have a little or you have a lot, the impact of money is exactly the same on an individual. Whether you have a lot, it is going to take you stress cortisol levels are going to go. If you have a little or a lot, whatever I just said then, it's also going to create cortisol levels in your body, uh, which is all the stress hormone. Yep. So it's it's a great equaliser, in fact. The fact that it, the way it touches us is a great equaliser. Yet we often feel because of the concept of having some and having a lot actually separates us, but it actually very much unifies us. Interesting. Also that thing that, yes, if I'm stressed about money, it's affecting my mental health, which means my financial well-being can be affected. But if my financial well-being is affected, such as that I don't have a roof over my head, 
my mental health is going to be affected. Yeah. And these are fundamental things that we often think, well, you know, if I mean, one of the things I'm very passionate about is mental health, of course, and homelessness. Mm. If you don't have your basic what we would define as being financial well-being is is that you can put a roof over your head and your family's head, you can clothe yourself and you can feed yourself. If you don't have that, then you are not going to have financial well-being and it's not going to have very good for your mental health. No. These very basic things are the things that actually make people thrive. If I feel stable, then I have the luxury of being able to have be creative. I have the luxury of being able to be a bit more philosophical. Mm. If I am struggling because of my trauma, because of my upbringing, then I don't have that luxury. Yep. And this is a real human right. We have the right to have to be able to thrive. I mean, it's part of the tenets that we see in every human right piece. But often when we have policy around the fact that, well, you're not working hard enough and you're not, um, you know, your mental health issues, well, you know, that's we need to give you pills for that. Some people don't have the greatest starts in life mm. and they shouldn't be punished because of it and if they have trauma which is another part that i'm really passionate about that shock trauma not just developmental trauma what you know the way you were brought up and that you may have been have uh, adverse childhood experiences like neglect or abuse or you know your parents had mental health but shock trauma the fact that if you have a car accident may be your undoing yeah. when you go through a divorce Maybe you're undoing. Mm. Losing a business, maybe you're undoing. And this all affects our mental health and it will affect our financial well-being. Absolutely. So, Jane, with the global pace of change, the era of uncertainty we've entered, the pandemics, the economic fallout that we know is coming and race riots, the fires, climate crises, it's exhausting to have to keep repeating and hearing many of us repeating these lists and the media repeating these lists. And, and what do you see coming? Look, I, all of that, everything that you've just listed is has a real effect on our mental health. I mean, we haven't even touched on or at the, currently we're looking at the, the end of the global summit over in Glasgow. The climate crisis is real. It's going to be real for my children. It's going to be very real for grandchildren. And we need to see that these issues such as climate crisis have a real effect on our mental health, which is going to have effect on not only individual financial well-being, but also community well-being. So these themes, economic fallout, you know, race, issues, inequality, one of the big things that I have a big issue for is, is that when we started offline, I think we were talking about these um, when the trickle-down economics came in the 80s when we're, there was this idea that if you have the people at the top not paying enough tax, yeah. that they will trickle down the benefits of that down to the economy, down to the, every, all their workers and that the people they touch. But the thing is, is it doesn't work. Fundamentally, it doesn't work because one person cannot spend a billion dollars in any market. They just don't, there's not enough products, there's not enough people that feed or, or are working in, a, in an industry for you to spend a billion dollars mm. worth of stuff. It only ever touches, even if you build yourself a rocket, 
it only touches a very small population of the people. Yeah. The engineers, they're only making, you know, hopefully 100,000, 200,000. They're not making that much. And you're only affecting maybe 100 people in that industry. Mm. So even if you build yourself a rocket to go to another planet like Mars, you're still not going to fund a whole community. Not a, certainly not a whole community. So that this principle of trickle-down economics doesn't work. Inequality, when we keep feeding our ego or our issues inside of our ego, that if I just get the biggest rocket on the planet and that's going to make me feel more potent, if not childhood omnipotence... You know, those issues around I'm the centre of the universe that I didn't resolve as a kid. <laughs> this is where we're at. Yeah. This this is where we, we keep propping up and that all of us go, yeah, but I want to be the king of the castle. <laughs> then we keep voting in people that are going to have the same policy. Yeah. And it's just on and on and on of which the earth and society gets broken down for it. Yeah, and the biggest divide between the haves and have-nots that... Has ever been. Yeah. Exactly. And these chronic kind of beliefs that everybody can have be the king of their own castle has to change in a finite universe or a finite planet that we mm. have. Now, the earth can't sustain. I mean, the earth can, can sustain itself. Uh, <laughs> itself. We may not be around no. to enjoy it, but the earth cannot sustain us all wanting to be the kings of no. our own castle. Exactly. And this has to, it is the call. It's, I mean, the reason why I'm a financial therapist is that, yes, I want you to be better with your relationship with money, but I want us to stop consuming, stop using money as a way to make us feel better. The world will never be enough. No, for those. For, any, for all of us, it will never be enough. We need to be able to find that internal resource mm. that says, you know what, this earth cannot sustain us all wanting to be the king of the castle all needing to consume in order to fill some sort of existential hole within us. Yeah. We have to find better ways to self-regulate, self-nurture, because the world, the earth, cannot continue our consuming beyond its resources. Yeah. So it's about trying to find a place that we can move off this kind of Keynesian concept that success is out there and actually success sits in here mm. inside of us, inside of our heart, that we can be say, I, you know what, I can contribute to my, my community and leave this place better than I did, rather yeah. than chugging out a whole bunch of fuel into the planet to take us off the planet, you know? Yeah. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Surely better legacies than that. Yeah. So, Jane, with all of these rolling COVID lockdowns, constant societal rule changes, there's an enormous strain over people. Are you seeing that this is impacting their financial... Um, practices as well? Yeah, I think it's come to the fore. I think if anything it has, I mean, as we feel, what I see often, particularly with people that come into my practice, overspending, you know, have, ha, can't have any control around their spending, has what, what takes a lot of people to my practice. What is the cause of that is stress. But being unable to self-regulate in a more, less consuming way. And I think what's happened is is that you know we, last year we saw a whole lot of whole lot of consuming you know retail businesses went very well in the start of the the pandemic and then we've started realizing that you know what I think I'm starting to know that when I get stressed I consume uh -huh. I buy so actually it's been a really great wake up call and actually you know in fact uh 
my inquiries to my site has increased because I think people are saying this is not sustainable. Good. Um, I can't keep consuming or using consuming and spending and overspending and buying shoes as a way to self-soothe. Yeah. So it's actually been really good. I think people are starting to see that. It's also been really good to see, I think, that as we've been in lockdown, how important nature is, that actually nature is a great resource and it's a great self-regulator. It regulates the nervous system. And I think we've been able to see that since I find this so important, this nature thing, that the, the way that we experience them is important. That when we get out onto our tracks and we see a thousand people, we start going, you know what? There's too many people here in nature. Yeah. We need to start preserving nature yep. because the way I experience nature is been overrun. And so it's actually a really great, I see a really great reset. And I use nature as a big resource in my practice mm. with working with people. And it, and it makes sense. As we've started to, I mean, all this kind of craziness we've been on is only about 100 years old. We often think that this is the norm. Well, actually, it's not the norm. No. Being in contact with your gardens, most of us had small plots that we lived on and that was the place that we used to get our nourishment from, that we came into community with. So this madness that we kind of think is real is, is only kind of new. Yeah. In the scheme of things, of, of humans. And we're paying the price for it, from having lost or forgotten the tradition of being in contact with nature and community. Mental health is out of control, but yet the pandemic beautifully has been able to reset that. And so I think there is the great reconnection and the returning and the pivoting that's happening for us as humans. So I hope that continues. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, people in financial stress um, in the reduction of face-to-face counselling and uh, so this is probably adding to the stress that you're talking about for people. Um, The mental health increase is adding to their stress. Um, We know that crisis prevention assistance services are experiencing increasing demands. So, yeah, the the level of work required in financial therapy can only be increasing. Yeah, exactly. So we've seen through the bushfires and then we had the floods and then we've had, of course, uh, the pandemic that the resources such as a financial counsellor now, financial counsellors work with people who are under, under crisis, usually with debt management, advocacy on behalf of debt renegotiation or, or um, uh, yeah, needing financial support. But for the rest of the swathe of the population, the you know, my vision would be that we would have some sort of mental health, a money mental health practitioner someone that can start looking at maybe the chronic issues that we have. So, look, I'm not under crisis, but I would I need help being able to do the soft skills. I need to understand how I get when I'm not confident around money, where, how I deal with stress and then I spend, or how I feel incapable to take some measured risk, like a mortgage. These are soft skills that we often don't talk around money. And for me, that is financial capability. I feel capable to do my finances better. We often just look at financial literacy and say, oh, yeah, this is a budget. But actually, that's only... Look, actually, the data says one of the ANZ Bank um, has a really great space around financial well-being. And they even say that it's only about 9% of financial well-being is knowledge. 
financial literacy, knowing what banking products wow. there are and things like that. 61% in their own research says that psychological and behavioural uh, aspects of money management make up financial well-being. So we know that all the soft skills such as I feel confident, I feel capable, I know how to re- rebound after financial shock, secure I feel financial, relationship with secure, money. secure relationship, that's what makes us better at money. Yeah. But what do we get fed or what are we focusing on, which is important, absolutely, is just financial literacy, a very small part. Yeah. We need to change the narrative that money is just the money, and it's not. No, it's so much it's, more. It's so much more. You know, I have a phrase, when it's about money, it's never about money. Exactly, because that's exactly money's right. money is just representative, it's just of energy. Yeah, it is. And even, you know, I mean, I, I, some, that's a lot of what, when we say money is something else and it may be about mm. energy, but then it's also like, well, but do I have the right energy or did I get the right energy or I don't have it? And actually it's not even that. It's beyond that. It's about I'm creative. I can make myself. I I can bounce back. I can do that. It's already those qualities that we already currently have. Rather than I often create. I've kind of come up with this idea of abundance bypassing. This thing that we go into kind of manifesting and benevolence, benevolence, and abundance thinking because we feel like somehow incapable with our current resources to do money. And also incapable maybe of being in society, finding out where we can fit into society, find help, find our position. Exactly. So we go into this bypassing place that I need to just have abundance and I need to have, you know, if I do manifesting uh, practices, then maybe something will come to me. Or maybe I'll just marry it. Yeah, exactly. Rather than knowing and finding I'm actually capable, my creativity makes me capable. Or I can start from scratch, you know, as other people do. Exactly, over and over again. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. if needed, as much as is needed. Jane, you've touched on this differentiation between a financial counsellor who is someone who can help people with their debt, their creditors, um, being unable to do budgets, they can advocate for someone in difficult financial situations and there might be government agencies. Um, I believe there's the National Debt Helpline, uh, Financial Counselling Australia. And this is all different from what you do as a financial therapist where you're talking about the soft skills. Yeah. Jane, what are some examples of when people might need your help or the warning signs that you see people in financial risk? You've mentioned stress. Um, any other signs? Yeah, so chronic overspending, um, under-earning is a piece that probably needs a little bit more uh, exposure that, you know, issues of maybe self-esteem or self-confidence that says that we feel unable or un- incapable to earn a little bit more, finding our voice around that. S- women, essentially, you know, have... I come from a, a, a trauma background, so looking at the impact of cultural narratives on women being able to stand up and take a place as financially capable... Yep. In my generation, I was told, just marry. Yep. That's how you you do money, is just mm. marry someone wealthy. That's how you do money. So that when that didn't turn out, or didn't for a lot of women, yep. the ground from underneath you doesn't exist somehow. Yep. So all these kind of cultural narratives, social uh, experiences as we've grown up influences how this nervous system does money. And these are very important things that we need to look at. And women is one of the 
big I have a lot of women come to see me when they're having to negotiate their divorce. Yeah. That they feel very incapable to actually find their voice and mm. find boundaries around the nego- financial negotiation. And I see it often too when people have fearing um, their abilities with money or, or fearing their ability to earn or change career or whatever it is around money, that the fear itself is bringing on the very very thing that they fear. Exactly, like, that's right. They feel stuck and they feel frozen mm. or a, a sense of paralysed. Another um, key area in my practice is people that have had a lot of money come to them and that how the overwhelm of that is. Yeah. I have another uh, cohort who are people that have retired, had very, very full lives in their businesses and then have this retirement money, you know, their, their superannuation come to them and it's just slowly but surely being trickled away mm. because of feelings of, uh, yeah, boredom or... Insecurity. Insecurity. So it can touch anyone. That's... I suppose my big message is that it touches anyone at any stage. Life stages can make it. You know, when the kids leave home and you're like, what do I do? How do I fill my days? And how do I maybe expand myself to, yeah, it's innumerable uh, places that people come to my practice. I can imagine. Jane, in my private practice, I've seen a wide range of financial problems and these include things like kids trying to fit in at school when there are major socioeconomic differences amongst their parents, uh, teens dealing with financial differentiation from their parents. You know, it might be a teen who really wants to invest in the stock market and the parent is out of their depth and not understanding it or the other way around. You know, the teen doesn't want to be earning when the parents really want them to be earning. Uh, adult children negotiating living at home with their parents and the financial issues there. Couples, you know, one of the big things that I see is couples with different values in finances. You know, you've got the spender and the saver and the tension in that value system not Absolutely. being congruent. And then financial betrayals, big yeah. thing I see in my couples as well. And major loss, of, as you've mentioned, the financial impacts of death and divorce. Um, yeah. Yeah. What- yeah, look, I mean, I the way I look at money is I look at it as the kind of fight, flight and freeze model. So yep. we often go to one or one of those or many of those around our relationship with money. And one of the big areas is this sense of freeze. We get into the immobility response. Now, what that means is, is that we feel very incapable Usually because what's happened when we were a kid and we saw all these messages around, am I going to survive? Am I going to thrive in this environment? And they were all very confusing. And for a little kid, that nervous system goes, ah, goes into the mm-hmm. immobility response. So what happens, we've laid down money is equals survival, which it is. Yep. To its most purest form. Yes. So that nervous system grows, will be arrested in some developed area or not you know doesn't have a certain amount of development in other areas and what happens when we get around money it takes us back to that survival response Mm, am i going to survive here is this a threat am i should i fight should i fly or should i freeze and freeze is something that i often see in my practice where people feel paralyzed 
They feel like they lose their voice. They feel incapable to stretch and follow their dreams. Or they lose their voice and can't ask for a raise. Or there's two kind of threat responses happening with the couples. One's in fight and the other one's in flee. You know, so one's out of the door and the other one's going, hey, right, come back. If we start looking at money as in the survival sense, then we get a better understanding of where we go as individuals. We can look at, you know what, sometimes, and this is when I when I start working with a client, I'll say, where do you go around money? Fight, flight, and freeze. And everybody gets it. Oh, I go into freeze. I go into fight. So we know how it affects our nervous system. We know then how it affects our psychology because it's like, yeah, if I'm under threat, you know, I, I go crazy. So it's to make it really simple. We all kind of know that money is about this deeper issues of survival and thriving. And so then actually that becomes a place where we can all work. We all have a sense of, yeah, okay, if I can see it like that, it's not this kind of scary boogeyman that I don't know how to manage. I can bring my survival, the thing that's got me here today to still put a roof over my head. I can bring that to the party in a so, way. So in your way of thinking about money, how do you then explain the thing that confuses so many people, which is gambling, where people seem to dissociate into the gambling and um, medicate, soothe, yep, I guess. Exactly. Um, same with addictions. Yeah. So I look at it in the physiology. So I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner, which is trauma. We're looking at the trauma response. So what happens when we have the immobility response is, is that the if you were here, you'd be seeing me shaking one hand, rising up, and then you would see the other hand putting a break on it. Now, when we're in, in, in immobility, we are highly charged yet frozen. Yeah. Now, what happens is that we try to seek to get out of that. Now, we can either get out of that by spending, by a little bit of dopamine, mm. or we can get into high risk. Because risk, actually, when we come out of the threat response, we actually bring the break off, this whole lot of energy starts coming out. And that energy is often very overwhelming. We see it in kids when there's been a bit of a, you know, they've had a fall, they'll go, and scream, right? Now, that actually resets the nervous system and brings us back into rest and digest. When we are in immobility and we haven't gone and got some therapeutic support, we often do things like overspending or risk, have life that's a bit chaotic as a way to try and master so I can come back down to rest and digest. Makes sense. So I am naturally going into this kind of, I'm in a threat response. I'm actually high charge, whatever. If I can just gamble, then that's going to give me that release. Mm -hmm. That's going to give me that saving so I can come back into rest and digest. So if we look at it in this model, it really makes sense. Yeah, it does. We're seeking to get that, to come back down and to rest and digest where we're just like feeling very capable. There's no threat. And, and, and I know how to do life. But when we're stressed, yeah. threat, I see everything as a threat, real or perceived. Mm. And I'm trying to get the discharge. I'm trying to get the relief. So if I gamble, maybe that will give it to me. If I go and jump off a building and do risky behaviour, maybe that will give it to me. That's what we're all trying to do. We're all trying to get back down to that self-soothe space that we didn't have. So if someone 
has a gambler in their family, they can introduce the cards and they can start the talk, the discussion, and it may even get the person to therapy or the family to therapy. Yeah, so we do know that through epigenics that um, cortisol levels and stress hormones are actually passed down into certain nervous systems from Absolutely. children. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean that someone will, no. but the fact that their stress levels is kind of pre-programmed or yes. how they manage stress is kind of slightly pre-programmed, meaning that... If you have low dopamine levels or low chemicals that are easy, that make us feel better, then your tendency to seek out things like gambling or risky behaviour or sex, promiscuity yeah. or drugs, you have more of a tendency because of your physiology. Yeah, that's something you just inherit. Yeah, exactly, unfortunately. Now, we need to make decisions around that to say that we need to look at mental health as, you know, drug addiction and gambling is more of a physiological thing that's not anyone's fault. Absolutely. But we also need to create containers to say, actually, it's not your fault. <laughs> but it still needs to be boundaried and, and it managed. needs to be boundaried and supported. But just to know that there's this kind of – a lot of people come to me when, and at some stage they'll go, you know what – I'm not that broken. And it's like, yeah, it's not, you're not that broken. Mm. Influences beyond your control have made you where you are right now. Yep. It's not your fault. Sure, you couldn't have, you didn't need to kind of throw that grenade there. But yeah, we, we are stacked against us even before we get here. Our lineage, not even to mention the lineage and the stress and the cortisol that came down from the depression from our ancestors exactly. that comes into this nervous system. So it's kind of stacked against us. And that's what I really love about the, how passionate I am is to sort of say, give yourself a break. You know, it's not your fault. And that's, you know, when I work with people, they get that. They go, oh, I just get now it's not my fault. Yeah, I mean, taking the blame away is always helpful because it just adds that extra layer of strain and it's confusing for people and they don't actually reach the real issue if they're sort of punishing themselves. Yeah. Got to work with yourself, not against yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jane, gambling can be one example of financial chaos, and I guess financial chaos is ranging from not knowing how much is in your bank account to constantly missing due dates and bills and getting fines and unrealistic choices, living beyond our means. I've seen people do that, overspending on credit cards, as you mentioned, um, and the new form of cryptocurrency, I've seen people wrangling with that as well and other new forms of currencies. Yeah, look, that, and they're all parts of that part that we're trying to, where we started, I suppose, we're trying to kind of find some safety, find some relief, you know. We're trying to downregulate, we're trying to, you know, find use money as a form of pain relief. And look, it's a chronic problem, and I think it's great that we're starting to have narratives that open up that money is a bigger conversation. If... Yeah, if you're starting to see that beyond the narrative of money, that you're living beyond your means, that you're overspending, that you feel incapable to save, that you feel incapable to manage that big inheritance or incapable to ask for a raise, to follow your dreams, these are all issues around our challenges with money. 
Yeah, these are things that we can look at therapeutically. That's exactly right. They are therapeutically. So they may not be the person, they may not be the conversation that you have with your advisor. They're the conversation, whether you come and see a financial therapist or not, they're a conversation you have with your regular therapist to yeah. say, this is, I'm starting to see that actually my issues with money might be an issues with confidence or my issues with money is my lack of boundaries yeah. and my self-esteem. And self-esteem. So this it doesn't have to be just about talking to a financial therapist. These are the places that we can talk as a family or someone that we support with, that we get support from. And resilience, adaptability and future-proofing, of course, these preventative things that um, set people aside, I would, would imagine, um, those who can manage psychologically their money quite well, uh, probably the resilient ones that are adaptive as well. Would you say so? Yeah, look, it I, makes me think as you ask that, is it, it's again, I come back to that conversation. Talking about money in an open, frank way is really the last taboo because it has an issues around the narrative that having a certain amount of money makes you successful or not having a certain level means you're not successful. And these very narrow views around money means that if you don't fall within that, that somehow you're the outer yeah, and I'm interested as you're speaking, I'm remembering that resilience is about social competency as much as it is about self-regulation. So if you're socially competent in managing the selfie um, movement and you don't need to be doing selfies all the time, then you're socially competent, then you're more resilient. And if you're regulating, of course, and managing yourself and you know that you've got nervous tension issues or insecurity issues, self-esteem issues, and you're working on those and you're regulating yourself, so your resilience around money is going to be much better. If you're, again, working with yourself and any insecurities you might have, weaknesses that you yeah. discover in yourself that you learn, just as you did in your story, your life story, yeah, the hard way, but hopefully people would learn faster with someone like yourself who they they seek hopefully at an earlier stage in their financial crises yeah that's right and look again you know being both mental health practitioners there has been a shift you know it certainly wasn't for my parents um that there was not much talk about mental health so we are in a good age of being able to have mental health as part of the narrative as communities i just want to put in money as one of those mental health issues uh, and it doesn't just affect people that are in crisis and it doesn't just affect people that are homeless it affects people that have a lot and have a little it sure does i see it every day pretty much in my practice and that real interconnect or interchange between mental health and money Absolutely. And that's it, because we've, we've got this narrow view that if you've got a lot, that you don't have mental health problems with money. Well, actually, you, you can. You, you do. You do. And if you don't have much, then you can't go and speak to anyone because there's a shame associated because you don't have enough. Yeah. So this whole thing, it just... It just hurts people and it just drives me crazy. <laughs> I know. And the perception, as you say, you know, I, I see people with a lot of money who have terrible stress because the, the money came from doing business with a friend mm -hmm. and then being shafted by the friend and now suddenly the families, yep. you know, wealth is fully at stake and the kids schooling and yeah. other things that Absolutely. The, the families got used to that... Again, the shame is there in that higher socioeconomic person, yeah. just as it is in the lower socioeconomic exactly. person. Exactly. And there, yeah, and there's also that kind of imbalance that we often think that, oh, because they've got a lot of money that they shouldn't have any pain around it. Yeah. And I'm, that's, I'm a big advocate of, to cha 
change that narrative yeah. because it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a lot or have a little. The way it affects your mental health is exactly the same. And it's so true and I actually don't think I've ever made that link till you've said it. Thank you. So, Jane, people in distress financially, where should they go? Who should they reach out to? Yeah, so you can go to a financial counsellor if you're under financial crisis. That means is that you're over, you can't pay your bills, you may lose your housing, uh, disasters, natural disaster. If you are un- under financial crisis, you go and see a financial counsellor. If you feel like you have issues with money, chronic issues, problems, as we've spoken here today, you could see a financial therapist or you just speak to get courageous and speak to your counsellor or your therapist that you're currently dealing with. This is an area that I think a lot of mental health practitioners are starting to look at and unpack. Yes. They, if, if they're good, like yourself, <laughs> they'll be able to, yeah, welcome the conversation. Of course, there's Lifeline and Beyond Blue if you have issues with your mental health. Both of those organisations are looking at the impact of money on our mental health. So it's a great narrative that's starting to open up. Yeah, if you wanted to come and work with me, my name is Jane Monica Jones. I'm sure there'll be a link in this episode uh, for my details. You can check out my book, The Billionaire Buddha, at most good online retailers you can also look at the money mental health cards you might be a practitioner and want to use another resource this is a great resource for practitioners to work with clients and introduce the concept um, that i talk often about the boundaries and yeah. inner cricket critic in a cricket i like to say in a <laughs> critic <laughs> um yeah finance and challenges inside of relationships and money uh, there's lots of great resources. Money, you, me, you, and money is a, an initiative that's been come out of uh, Victoria Health, which is looking at young people and financial boundaries and money great. in starting out relationships and where you, me, and money sit with early uh, development of um, you know f- making sure that kids are not you know young adults are not getting into financial abusive relationship. So there's lots of great resources out there. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Thank you so much, Jane. You've been so enlightening to all of us about money and mental health and we need more financial therapists. Thank you, Amanda. Yes, we do. And it's been an absolute pleasure spending this time with you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.